Okay. okay. Friends, we are at 6.30. Let's go ahead and get started. We have another fantastic week. The <coughs> one and only Professor Kazuyuki Hayashi. <laughs> All right, so last week, Kaz uh, did a fantastic job of just walking us through the big picture, history of ancient Israel, a little bit about archaeology, some stuff he's found, ways that it really brings the text to life. And so this week, we're specifically digging into the book of Joshua, right? Yes. Excellent. Okay, so let's start with prayer. Would someone like to open us in prayer? Mm -hmm. I know it. Because we've got a lot of people who are sick and shut in that need to be recognized. So, Heavenly Father, we come before you this day, Lord. First of all, we want to thank you. Thank you for being our Lord and for dying on the cross for our sins. Lord, we ask you the names of Brother White and our brother, Brother Raylon and his family. My brother Ricky and his family and all others, those that uh, may not know, but you know. Lord, we ask you to be the healer that you are, be the comforter that you are. Lord, take care of them, give them strength, give them guidance, give them everything they need. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. 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 All right. <coughs> well, thank you for inviting me back again today. So last week, like, like Nick said, we covered kind of a framework, right? So we talked about the biblical history, what periods it basically covers, what it covers. The earliest one started with the Middle Bronze Age, and it finishes at the Persian period. Um, and in other words, I also talked about the biblical chronology, um, that there was a pre-monarchic age, meaning before the kingdoms of Israel. There's a monarchic age, when the kingdom of Israel had its own kings, followed by the exile, the destruction of Israel, and now the Israelites are living outside of their land, and then the Persian period when they come back <coughs> to their land and homeland. So, today, I'm going to try to give you a specific example from the pre-monarchic period. Well, I say the pre-monarchic period is a very wide period. We're talking about the Middle Bronze Age, which is about 1,500 BC, um, 2,000 BC to 1,500 BCE. We're talking LB, Late Bronze Age, 1,500 to 1,200, and Iron Age 1. And I don't expect you to have all these memorized after one week. So, but specific, uh, we're specifically going to focus on the Book of Joshua, because in the Book of Joshua is one of those texts that is set in, the, the narrative is set in before the time of the kingdom. Um, and if you have to put a time period on it, it's going to take in the Iron Age 1, uh, the period of 1200 BCE to 1000 BCE is the <coughs> backdrop of the narrative. So, I think a good thing to do when we are studying the Bible is, what's happening? There we go. Um, let's kind of start with an overall picture of the book of Joshua itself. The book of Joshua um, has 12 chapters. And this is roughly the outline. We're going to start with an introduction that sets up the standard of how to read the rest of the book in chapter 1. Followed by chapter 2. Uh, give me a second. No, this should be... There we go. Sorry. Uh, I was like, this is not... I'm not used to using this. So, sorry. So we start um, broadly. Um, there's 24 chapters. Um, we're going to start with the conquest. And so this is the very famous battle camps of the book of Joshua, including Jericho, which is the first battle that we're going to try to focus on today. Um, one thing that you notice when you read through the book of Joshua is that Joshua doesn't only fight one battle, but many battles. And um, so there are 12 chapters that cover that. Then we have the Israelite tribal allotments. This is a section that most people tend to skip when they're reading their Bibles and their devotions. 
because it's going to say, to the tribe of Reuben, this area was given. To the tribe of Simeon, these, you know, um, Judah, different, different tribes receiving different allotments. A lot of people get lost in this. We're not going to really talk about that today, but still, if you try to read it, um, they're actually, um, you can tease out some very important theological implications from lists, um, but usually you would need a commentary to help, you, help guide you with that. Um, and then at the final, um, to, um, 22 to 24, we kind of go into this idea of proper worship of God. What does that mean? What does it look like? Um, but today I want to specifically focus on the first area, the, the conquest area. Um, and the conquest is going to be 12 chapters, started, like I said, with introduction. Then in Joshua 2, we have the narrative of the, the Israelite spies, two spies, going into Jericho and Rahab. Um, hides the spies and let them go. Um, it's actually a beautiful narrative that I wish we could talk about, but um, we're going to be, I'm going to talk some, some about it, but not, we're not going to dive into it. Joshua 3, 4, we have the story of crossing of the Jordan and the different preparation that was part of crossing the Jordan. Joshua 5, the first half, is a story of circumcision, how Joshua goes and circumcises the Israelites, followed by the second half, the first battle that the Israelites fight against the city of Jericho. Then, in chapter 7, we have a second battle, and the, the second battle divides into two parts. It begins with this shocking story of a, de, of a defeat. After this glorious battle of Jericho, somehow, somehow the Israelites lose the battle against the city of Ai. Followed by another chapter where, this time, it's going to talk about how the Israelites could win and did win the battle of Ai. <coughs> Then there's Joshua 9, um, this Gibeonite deception, how the Gibeonites and Israelites form uh, alliance together. Then Joshua 10, there's a victory over Jerusalem and the southern coalition. So this is an Israelites going and attacking all the land south in the southern area of, the, of Israel. And then, after you can defeat people in the south, where do you go? North. So, um, no political implications in America with that. I'm just saying, this is how the narrative is structured. But then in, in chapter 11, we hear read about the victory that the Israelites fought against the North. And finally, there's a summary of the conquest. Uh, it kind of repeats, this is what the, the people of Israel did. They defeated these people, these people, these people. It's, it almost gives the outline that I just gave you today. So, we're going to be talking about the Battle of Jericho. And instead of me talking, I, I want to, you know, I think reading the scripture word of God is very important. So, can someone read the first three <coughs> verses? Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with his king and his fighting men. Watch around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Right, thank you. Verse 4, can someone read that? And it can be your version, it doesn't matter if it's hard to see the screen, it's just their review. It's easy. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. Thank you. Someone, verse 5. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse. And the army will go up, everyone straight in. Verse 6 and 7. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, 
take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Thank you. Verse 8. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. Thank you. Verse 9. The armed guards marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. I can read verse 10 and 11. But Joshua had commanded the army. Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. They did, they did this for six days. Um, someone who, who read 15? On the seventh day they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except that on the day they circled the city seven times. Okay, um, verse 16. <coughs> the seventh time around when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And, and verse 17, someone. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her <coughs> shall be spared, because she had despised consent. Verse 18 and I, I can read it, but keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. <coughs> Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Oh, the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Um, then verse 20, please. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. <coughs> so, how many people have read this or ever heard the story of Joshua before? Probably <coughs> most of us. Um, and it's a very popular story. Um, some people grew up in the church would know this song. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. You're missing one word. Oh. We, we, we came out singing, Joshua fit the battle. Oh. <laughs> that, that's where our... Really? Okay. Yeah. I'm learning new things. Yeah, Joshua oh, yeah. fit, fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, fit. Mm. Yeah. No, it's like, it, that was the old Negro spiritual version really? okay. of that. That's, yeah. that's what that is. Man, I'm learning something new. I'm so happy. <laughs> like, it's like, whew. I was like, we should both sing this now. No. <laughs> okay, um, karaoke. Oh, but anyways, and there are also, this story is one of the popular stories that you find in almost any children's Bible. And the very famous VeggieTales series. Um, and VeggieTales, how it entitles the story, is Joshua and the Big Wall. And it seems like um, what is emphasized when, you, when we hear about like Joshua and the Big Wall? The size of the wall, right? Yeah. Um, and also, sorry, I'm not used to this clicker. Um, here is a page from a children's Bible about the story of Jericho. And it says, the walls of Jericho. Look at Jericho's wall. They are so tall. How can Joshua capture that city? God told him, now, march around the city. And God said, obey me. It kind of gives you the, you know, gist of the story, right? 
But once again, the emphasis is, that's placed on this story is that the wall is so tall that it seems impossible for the Israelites and Joshua to capture this. In fact, I own an award-winning um, children's Bible or storybook, and it gives the emphasis on the size of the wall is very clear in that book. Um, it says multiple times that big wall on multiple pages. Um, so my question is, how tall is that wall of Jericho? I mean, this, this seems like a popular perception that is emphasized over and over, both on TV, the one of the most popular Bible-like TV series as well, as in children's book, that will teach children about the Bible stories at a very young age. And I think these things are important. How we tell the stories directly influence what we know about the story and what we think about the stories. Um, so... <coughs> Does anyone have any idea, between Joshua chapter 1 through 7, how many times the wall is mentioned? Nick? Just give a random number. Random number. How many times do you think the term wall is mentioned in Joshua 1 through 7? Up to the sto- starting with the story of Joshua spending two spies to the, land, uh, to the city of Jericho, going into the city. Twenty-five. 25, okay, there we go. Do we have a 30? Do we have a 40? I'm sorry, 50. 10. 10, okay. The answer is actually three times. Three times. (laughs) Just three times. Oh. That makes me think. Maybe. I mean, mean, the wall plays a very important role in the story, but is it due the attention that we often give? And the second question is, how is this wall described? Is another thing. Um, here are the, one of the verses, the first time the term wall appears, is Joshua chapter 2. So she let them, she as in Rahab, who helped the spies, so she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of a city wall. And this is the best description that we're going to have of the wall in the entire book. Because, as you'll see, the following two times is going to be in Joshua 6, kind of just we what we read. When you hear them sound the long blast on the trumpet, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse, is the second time that the term wall appears. And the third time that the term wall appears is when this happened. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. My question is, do we have any indication that that wall was big based on the biblical text? No. Not once is the term gadol, which is the Hebrew word for big, appear. It's, there's no terms that, it, uh, that idea that, that the biblical text gives that this was a mighty wall. And the Bible does um, describe things in that way when it's, in, when it's relevant for its message. Instead, like I said, the most detailed description we have for this wall, sorry, is here. So she let the Rahab down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Yes. So what was typical of a city wall? Like, did a lot of cities have houses within the wall? Great question. And the only way to answer that question is archaeology is why we're here today. So, once again, what can we tell from this verse? It doesn't look like it was that, that tall to me. 
Okay. You can get down with, with the rope. Yeah. You, it's, so it has to be tall enough that someone can safely put someone down with right. a rope from a window. Also, the fact that there is some hole, you know, a window, I don't know, that, would you put holes in your wall intentionally when you're expecting enemies to come in? Like, welcome, come this way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there, there are different ways to describe this, right? Um, and I know, like, even with this picture, whoever drew it thought of, like, this mighty, almost fortressy wall. It's kind of what we think. Right. So, we actually have, um, and the fact that we can tell from here is that um, the wall was inhabitable. It seems like it was possible to live in a wall based on this passage. Is that correct? You know, because um, Rahab lived in the wall. We actually have types of wool that are called casemate wool from the land of Israel. And casemate wools were very specific wools. You will see over here, there's going to be an outer wall right there, meaning the wall that's facing outside. And then there's going to be an inner wall, which is inside of the city. Um, and between these two walls, <coughs> outer and inner walls, were walls that will separate, making rooms. And then people would usually live in these rooms. And how can you tell people that? Because we actually can find traces of life. There are going to be pottery. There's going to be cooking stuff. We can find cult stands for people that in the household religion. Um, so the idea is, let's just think that is the outer wall, and this could be the inner wall or something. And we are, those people would live in these spaces. Um, this is very specific type of wall, and we actually do find it beginning with about the late Bronze Age throughout the Iron Age. And this is a map of how frequently we find them. And you can tell, you can tell that they are spotted throughout the land of Israel. What yes. What were the walls made out? Usually, um, the walls would be, the foundation is going to be built with stones because foundations are more important. Um, and another reason is when you have a wet day like this and if you had um, mud brick walls, what's going to happen? They're going to melt. Yeah. One false assumption that a lot of people have is, well, I mean, if people have bricks, weren't they burnt? You know, weren't they like bricks that we use today that can actually, is, you know, reliable? If you go to the land of Israel, burnt mud brick structure is very rare. The reason being, it just takes more time to build, right? It's more effort um, and different things that makes it difficult. So actually, when I was excavating this summer in the land of Israel, I was able to find mud brick walls from the Middle Bronze Age, about 2000 BCE. A lot of a lot of other things that people have a misconception is with mud brick walls is didn't they just put straw in it? Actually, not always. Mud brick straw didn't always have straw in it. And what they needed is some um, particle that makes it stronger and more adhesive. And a lot of time, times they would use actually something that has calcite. Either that be limestone that's smashed, or maybe seashells that are smashed. And these things actually change the chemical component of these these bricks that makes it stronger. But so usually what we'll have is stone foundation. You know, large rocks, usually something about this, a foot wide or something, maybe a little bit more, a foot and a half. And on top of that, they usually would set up mud brick walls. And that's a fantastic question, and I want to show you what a casemate wall would look like if you actually find it in an archaeological context. This is a site called Kermit Kayafa. Um, it's, it's a site that's been found within like the past, 
know, a couple decades, really, about the past 20 years. And it's a very cool site. Um, it's a site that we actually have casemate walls as well as gates. So, um, here's kind of a drawing of what the site looks like over here. And you're going to see there's a gate right here going into the, the city. And here's another gate right here going into the city. And what you see right here is what we're talking about, these casemate wall systems. You can see that there's an outer wall right here that is going around the city. And by the excavated area, it's going to show the rooms that were connected directly to these outer walls that people would live in. And, um, and this, I thought this would be a good, good example because it's fairly close. This is from the area called the Shefela, um, a, pretty close to the land, uh, the city of Jerusalem, and Jericho's on the other side, but it's give or take uh, in the same area. And this is also from the period of the Iron Age, so I thought it would be a good example of what you can see. And it's actually a very well-preserved example of casemate walls that we see here. So is it like, you know how we have neighborhoods, so like were these desirable places to live or did you want to make That's an interesting question. Um, I wouldn't say very desirable because okay. the only reason why I say that is when, let's say the, the higher elites are going to get the most desirable places. Does that kind of make sense? You know, the rich people, the people that need some more protection. And usually, no, they're not going to be living in these right next to the walls. I mean, they're going to be, that's the first place that might be attacked in these instances. So, and I know that a lot of um, traditional, um, these kind of biblical sites and sites of the Iron Age, usually the city center and the most elevated area are the areas that you're going to find the most important things like temple, administrative building, palaces. And you can see that's exactly why archaeologists <coughs> tend to excavate the center in the highest areas. This, um, you can tell not all of the site is excavated. And we almost, as archaeologists, never excavate the entire site. There are different reasons for it. There's only so much manpower that you have. Excavating is a lot. Um, so, you don't have all the money to go, to go um, excavate all the areas. And another reason is because archaeologists are improving in their knowledge. The more we dig, the more we learn, and or technology is advancing. Um, back in the days, they drew everything. Now we have scanners, we have 3D printing, we have drones that will take pictures. Um, so, um, the idea is we keep areas for the future generations to, to excavate, and they can clarify or correct things that were um, found out maybe like now or even a decade ago. So yes, um, so I wouldn't say it's really desired, like the ultimate desirable place that people are going to be living in. Yeah. But anyways, um, so let's keep going here. Um, the gate here is kind of a better view of the gate. And like I said, what you, when we excavate, you don't find buildings that are intact. It's been thousands of years. All the infrastructure is usually gone other than the foundations. The foundations are what we find as archaeologists. So um, this is going to be the stone foundations that you see. You can actually, if you look carefully, see the different shapes of rocks that are making these foundations on top of it, which there must have been mud brick. And actually with Kayapa, I believe there are some places that the, the bricks were preserved partially with, um, with this site. Do they also have huge cut limestone like pyramids? Very rare. So these are called ashlar masonry. Ashlar means just cut. So um, th those you can tell that they're not cut. Ashlar masonry is very rare. 
Um, there are a few sites that we do find these, and especially New Testament sites, we find it all over the place. But when we're talking like Old Testament sites, we might find it at like the site of Dan. Uh, a very interesting fact that we know is when you read the book of Leviticus or something, which I know everyone loves reading. Um, um, it actually gives you specific directions as to how to build an altar. So if you want to build an altar, that's where you're going to go. One rule that God specifies in that text is that the altar should be built of rocks that are not chiseled or like cut. In the archaeological context, almost every altar we find are cut smoothly. So we wonder if it's because the Canaanites, would, this might have been a Canaanite practice or Philistine practice to have these very nice altars and maybe God wants the Israelites to separate. There's not really a really good reason why we can figure out the differences there. But yes, um, every now and then if we're lucky, we'll find really nice cut stone, but it's quite rare, especially um, bronze age, some in the Iron Age, but yes. Great. Um, so the height is shocking. They have one of the highest, um, <coughs> what was it, um, casemate wall that I know of, and it's only about nine feet tall. Probably about this, right? Maybe up there? Would you say that's about nine feet? Right, about three meters. So what? That might be taller. So, so nine would be about that. We're thinking the walls of Jericho if it was actually built, by, built as a casemate wall, and I think that's the best description we have based on the biblical evidence, must have only been about that tall. Oh. Does that sound like a very tall wall to you? Uh-uh. Well, you consider the timing and the manpower and what you had to do to build a wall and all of the other. Yes. You couldn't really go higher than that. Yeah. Well, the thing is, casemate walls are that high. We have taller, taller walls. Yeah. We have fantastic. So this is not all the type of wall they built. If they, we actually do have very strong fortified wool. For example, um, I'm going to talk about it next week, about Hezekiah and what kind of walls he built. And of course, Hezekiah is, I don't know, four or five hundred years after the time of Joshua. But they're humongous walls. So it's not like they didn't have the manpower or technology to build a stronger wall or a taller wall. It's just the type of wall. If it's a casemate wall, they didn't really build it that way. What have what, uh, Rahab's house then window been on top of the wall, like built on top of the wall? Or? No, so as you can see here, this is not on top. It's, this is basically, just, just think about, hey, let's, put all, let's build wall houses right next to each other. Yeah, I and understand that's that. It's more like the whole dropping the rope thing. A drop in the rope thing, yes. So, so, yeah, a lot of buildings here um, is actually, like I said, we only find the foundations, but they're good indications that they're two-story high. A lot of, um, even like Israelite, what very popularly called like a three-room um, three house, that's one of the most popular models of Israelite houses. Um, we already know that those are two stories high because every now and then, archaeologists are terrible people. We love destruction and death. Um, because whenever there's destruction, there's a better um, preservation of the material. Um, because things will just fall, and when the wall falls, everything here is going to just stay there. You know, um, and we have evidence of falling, of the second floor smashing down and keeping everything from the first floor. So, it was most likely two stories high. And a lot of people think, we don't know really, but, you know, people, a lot of people like to think that, you know, um, 
the ancient Israelites lived on, slept on top of their roof or something too. So um, think about that. And there's good biblical indications that you know the roof was also used frequently. So yes, um, it's about two stories and two stories tall, tall. And like the first floor, a lot of times they'll keep animals too. Um, there are other sites where these casemates of the rolls are found. One of them is Gezer, a very important biblical site. And in one of the Gezers, we know that they kept animals there. We have signs of urine, poop from horses. Yeah, very exciting things that we dig. I, I, I was digging through some of that this summer too. Um, but anyways, yeah, um, you can tell a lot of things about from chemical analysis of poop. Um, but anyways, but yes, there, these are some things that we, we would estimate or guess. So, and I want to talk uh, about another thing. How large do you think Jericho was? The site. What you see here is the archaeological site of Jericho. And Baylor University is about a thousand acres. So I'll just give you a comparison. You know, to Baylor right there is about a thousand acres. How wide or big do you think Jericho was? Give me give me a number. Mm. Oh, that acre or two long? Oh, no, no. <laughs> Probably about maybe about ten acres. Ten acres, okay. That's a good guess. That's a really good guess. Maybe I shouldn't have shown you the picture. <laughs> Jericho's about six to nine acres. Mm, okay. We know, that, I mean, there's really no debate of that because there, we, we archaeologists are pretty sure that we know where it is. Um, so there would be at least a hundred Jerichos in Baylor University campus. Does that sound big to you? No. <clears throat> and another thing to notice is one of those things of like, let's actually see what the biblical text says. Jericho never is mentioned as a large city. And the biblical text actually mentions a large city. It actually calls Hatzor. It's another site that you read in the book of Judges, and um, Hatzor is called the head of all these kingdoms. And it's actually 200 acres. And just to let you know, 200 acres is a mega city in that time. Um, it is one of the largest sites, not only in Israel, in that entire area of the Levant. This is a metropolis. You know, we're thinking one of the largest cities in the world at that time was at Hatzor. And the Bible correctly recounts the memory of Hatzor being a large city, but not for Jericho. So, now that we looked at the biblical text and archaeological record, we know that Jericho itself was a tiny site. We know that the wall of Jericho was probably not that tall. So, I know I'm destroying some people's childhood dreams and memories right now, but the question right now is what the heck is the book of Jericho emphasizing then? Because in children's book and children's Bible stories and whatnot, we emphasize the size of Jericho, how mighty Jericho was, how impossible it was to get over the conquer these walls. So the question is, what really is the biblical text emphasizing? So I want to go to there next. Um, can someone read verse 21 here? They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the uh, prostitute's house and bring her out, and all who belong to her in accordance with the oath to her, your oath to her. <clears throat> Verse 23, please. 
So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Verse They burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. In verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid them in Joshua had sent the spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Thank you. What what thoughts do you have when you read these five verses or so? What, what are what are some things that jumped out to you? You know, um, I, I'm thinking Jericho wasn't that big, it wasn't that bad, but you know, sometimes we call it a warm up battle. You got to have somebody easy easily to defeat. <laughs> You're talking. You're you're talking like a person who knows sports. Man, I like that. I like that thought. Okay, God's given an easy bowl, right? Yeah, like come on, let's go. Well, I mean, I mean that's, so, how you, that's how you know. That's how you instill confidence in your team. You get smart. You can beat up. I think there's more truth than not in that statement that you said. Um, I really do. I think that I think that's a really keen insight. Okay. Anything else? I'm I'm a crimson thread guy, so Rahab really um, Rahab. Yes. It's really important. But you, since she's, you know, in the line of Jesus. Yeah, do you re- realize how many times Rahab was just mentioned right now? Mm-hmm. You know, did Rahab occurred over and over. Okay, what else did you notice in, this, in these verses? Our prostitutes are not bad. She, 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 <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amen, amen. You know, it's, it's amazing. Okay, let me point to one issue that a lot of people have been doing this. It's called the ban. Or it's, it's like this divine command for destruction. Um, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed it with a sword, every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys, and Joshua 7.21. This verse has been misused in church history. And you can probably imagine how. Um, let's say the Crusades. Let's say even... Um, different British or, you know, Western empires going and making, um, conquering different lands, and they'll use something like this to justify their, to theologically justify some of these <coughs> terrible actions that they're committing. So, I ask you this. What would you say to someone that comes up to you and says, the Bible says, you know, have a divine command to destroy, like, how can I interpret this passage? It's a dilemma that a lot of, when we read the scripture, sometimes we face, you know. So I know sometimes it's easy to overlook these things. But this is, really is a dilemma. It's, it's a difficult passage for a lot of people to see or <coughs> understand. I think this is something we've talked about okay. in the Bible before when we talk about grace versus the law. And so it seemed like in the law that um, it seemed, you know, kind of do or die. You know, because this is not the only place where he told them. Mm-hmm go kill everything, mm-hmm. that, that happens throughout the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you did something wrong, you just got struck down. You know, it's yeah. kind of this idea that, you know, like, it's just, it just seems violent, you know. Yeah. And, and it is. It's such a, um, there's grace in it, Nick, Nick always says, but um, it just seems like brutal. It seems like God was 
a little more brutal in the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> we worship the same God, right? Older yeah. you, so that, you know. But yes, we read these things and we're like, wow, I mean, like, what? what's happening, like that God? Means babies. Yeah. They're in there killing babies. Yes, ma'am. The dog. You know, I don't know yeah. if they had pets back then, but, you know, they took everything that had life. That mm-hmm. had to go. Yeah. All the intangible things like the gold and stuff, yeah. they could take, but it had to go to the temple. So Yes, great point. Mm-hmm. So you're really on to something right now. And like I said, they're good questions. Excellent questions. Excellent questions. And when you, where you're predicting where I'm going and stuff. But anyways, um, so I want to look into some ancient Near Eastern text, um, as long as the biblical text, and see how we can answer this question right now. Um, they devoted the city to, to the Lord. The English tries to give the idea, actually, of one single Hebrew word. And that is the term haram, or what you see right there. Um, the noun term is harem, which a lot of people know. But um, the question is, what does this term mean? Um, how can we good, give a good translation? And if you look at different translations, you're going to find different ways it's translated. One of the most popular ways that God called something to be banned is a very ultra old and popular way that this has been translated. Um, but I want to say that this word haram appears outside actually of the Bible. And so this is not simply or purely a biblical notion um, that this seems to reflect a wider ancient Near Eastern thought and culture and practice that was um, represented. So, this is what we call the Moab or Mesha Stella. Stella basically means a really large stone slab with writing on it, and sometimes drawings. But, it comes from the land of Moab, and Moab is the neighbor of the Israelites, and they appear in the biblical text many times. For example, Ruth and Naom, Ruth was a Moabitess. Um, she came from the land of Moab, and from this land we find this stele. Um, and I give you a translation of it, um, only a part of it, line 14, 15, and 16. And Kimosh, Kimosh is a deity of the Moabites. So the Moabite God said to me, the king, go take Nebo, a city, from Israel, or mountain also. And I went in the night, and I fought against it from the break of dawn until noon, and I took it. And I killed its whole population, 7,000 male citizens, aliens, female citizens, and aliens and servant girls for I had put it to the ban or destructions or devotion um, of Ashtar Kemosh once again their deity and from there I took the vessels of Yahweh and I had hauled them before the face of Kemosh the deity what are some similarities that we're, we, we see between this inscription from roughly the same time as the book of Joshua and from a neighboring country, written in a very similar language to Hebrew. Are there they, some similarities? They killed everything and then took the vessels, which were probably the things that had like monetary value, not human life value, and they yeah. took that and gave it to their God. Great. So in the book of Joshua, this destruction or the ban was called upon all living things. And we, you mentioned that earlier. And over here, we also see something similar. That, you know, there is a divine command for <coughs> dedicating things, um, life, to death. And 
like you mentioned, in the book of Joshua, we see all these precious metals, right? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, to be dedicated. Um, um, do you remember where these precious metals were supposed to go in the book of Joshua? To the, to the Ark of the Covenant. Cool, close, temple. close. Yeah, right at this point, we still don't have a temple, right? Right. So, um, it actually says to the treasury. So, but basically, it's the same idea. It's going to be a storage area for um, the these holy complex or cultic complex. When I say cult, I just mean religious, okay? Religious um, buildings. And here, where do all these vessels, probably precious, went to? The, God of the, the face of Kimosh, probably before Kimosh, meaning probably at their sanctuary too. So we have two similarities right now. It seems like also in the Moabite inscription, there's this notion of dedicating um, life to the deity as well as um, dedicating precious objects to the deity. Yes. May I offer another opinion on why you kill everybody? You have an opinion? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Of course, there are probably practical reasons like this, right? They're worried about, of course, revenge. Um, also, one thing, one thing that Israelites were really worried about is intermarriage, or like um, in, in, intermarriage because usually these things represented, um, um, oft, it often leads to the integration of their culture as well as their religious notions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the Israelites, we know a clear example from like the book of Ruth, that they didn't, they weren't against marrying foreigners, right? But what they were really worried is, what is the Bible about? It's about God, you know, what, what does God want? He wants people to worship him and not look at different other deities. And even with the story of Solomon, you know, um, the great temple builder, one of the texts, one of the things that the text highlights is that these intermarriage was wrong, not because intermarriage itself was problematic, was how he started building sanctuaries for his wives, and it seems like these foreign worship came in. So that was the issue, and that's really where the Bible hits hard. You know, what is God worried about? You worshiping him and not other people. That's, that's what God is concerned. So that, that's going to be at the heart of the issue of some of these things. But yes. So when did they start capturing people? Was it a society or these groups got bigger because we know they started hauling out the Israelites for slaves like they picked people you're talking about like the Egyptians uh, or like was well, the Egyptians and then was it uh, who do we so, just study um, you're talking about like um, we just like people much. exile and like oh, okay. so da Daniel yeah so like they took these they took certain people with yes them. So, so they didn't kill everybody. They started taking a few little folks. That with is them. a long-lasting tradition, actually. Okay. Um, the reason being, um, you can have free labor. Mm -hmm. um, um, there and warfare tend to be both. They okay. destroy some people as well as take people out of a country. Okay. Um, the Syrians did that um, when they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria. We have reliefs of people taking the Assyrians taking people away. We know that from the Babylonian destruction. Even way before that, we know that the Egyptians actually took different people and made them part of their army and fighting force. So it's it's a pretty common practice actually to haul away people too. Um, one thing that I want to mention here is that the notion that's in the communicate behind this is that something is actually people and material are being dedicated to a deity. Um, and this is what's really important. 
wars were not simply fought to gain land or property or power. Um, the ancient people actually saw this as a divine war or something divinely initiated. Um, and when, if God is fighting on your side and God commands these battles, which in these cases it is, in this Moabite inscription, it's not the king saying, let's go fight. It's the deity who initiates these things. We read that even with the book of Joshua. It's not simply Joshua saying, let's go fight. Um, it's, there's these divine initiations and the divi it's a divine battle. God is really fighting the battle. Um, because um, even this song that's really popular, Joshua fought, or um, you know, um, the Battle of Jericho, it's really not Joshua that's fighting. Because one thing the text emphasizes, Joshua's not really doing anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, so one thing that we have to know that it's a divine battle. And if God wins it, God deserves to have everything behind what is at home. Um, we also find this Hittite. Hittite is from the north, modern day um, Syria, uh, Turkey, Syria. And this is to shoot my Lord, um, handed it over to me, and I have desolated it and made it sacred. Desolated, make it sacred. Um, as long as heaven and earth and mankind will be, in future no son of man may inhabit it, meaning this land that they just want. Teshub is their deity. So this, this is an inscription where a king said, the deity gave me a portion of land, and this, or uh, helped me win over this land, and this land is going to be dedicated for this deity, and no one can ever inherit this land, because it belongs to who? The, the God. Yes, Teshub. Um, I have offered it to Teshub, my lord, together with fields, farm yarns, vineyards, litter bulls, sherry, and puri, make it their own grazing land. He who nevertheless will inhabit it and will take the grazing land away from the bulls of Teshub, let him be averse party to Teshub, my lord. So, this is a warning that's being done for later generations to remember that a particular land <coughs> was won over and fought over by the deity and dedicated to this um, deity. So while we don't have an exact word haram, to destroy, to devote to the man, or to dedicate something, we have a very similar notion, once again, from the neighbor of Israel, of something being sacred and get, being given away to, to a deity. So I think what's happening here in the book of Joshua is this concept that this land is for the deity and it's, it seems like um, um, it's both life and precious material belongs to that God. Um, so that's kind of well my summary right there. So let's talk about kind of the theology. So what is really this story trying to tell us or teach us is one of my questions. I talked about how in the structure, Joshua 1 is an introduction, and it kind of sets up everything that we read. And it actually talks about very important things here. Joshua, in, um, chapter 1, verse 3, said, God um, tells, sorry, Joshua, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. So we start with a divine promise. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may success and be successful wherever you go. Again, there's this idea of a promise, and there's Moses mentioned as an example, and the, the people of Israel are encouraged to live in obedience. The people answer Joshua, whatever you command us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go, in Joshua 1.16. 
This is the introduction, and we also talked about how chapter 11 functions as a conclusion to the first section of the book. Chapter 1 to 12 is one story, uh, or a series of stories, focusing on this conquest of the land. And we get a conclusion statement by the biblical author. <coughs> Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. What we just read, this destruction idea, or dedication idea. He totally destroyed them as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. The Israelites carried off, their, off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. And another verse. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions, the land had rest from war. What was the name that appeared the most <coughs> in these verses? Moses. Moses appears over and over and over here. The question is why? What is the significance of this? Um, and it talks about obedience, right? And Joshua seems like um, an exemplary character. Once you actually can compare the figure of Joshua and Moses, we find out that Joshua is basically portrayed in these inverted chapters as the second Moses. It seems like Joshua is the second coming of Moses. And we have a very detailed story of how the um, leadership was transitioned from Moses to, to Joshua. Just as um, Moses sent 12 spies into the land, Joshua sends two spies. When Moses sees the non-burning bush, I know we call it burning bush, but the whole point is it wasn't burning. So the non-burning bush that looked like it was burning, what does he do? Take off his shoes. Takes off his shoes because you're in holy ground. Um, in the book of Joshua, we didn't read it, but he encounters this command, commander or like angel of the Lord, and what he does is the very same thing. He, he takes off his shoes and encounter of the of the divine presence. Um, there's also a circumcision narrative that's really weird in the book of Exodus, but yeah. on the way back, um, Moses uh, gets circumcised. But also in the book of Joshua, we see a massive circumcision um, ceremony that happens before entering and going into battle. And once um, exiting out of the land of Egypt, Joshua splits or it's really God, um, splits the Red Sea. And also in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites are crossing the Jordan to enter in the land of Israel, God splits the Red Sea so they can, they can, can go. So there are very intentional literary parallels that are made and showing Joshua in the steps of book, uh, Joshua uh, in the steps of Moses. And if we actually look at our narrative that we talk about, what we <coughs> talked about today, the ten plagues, a lot of people think that what's happening here is a warfare narrative. Because God is fighting for the people of Israel. The Israelites don't have to go and fight out for themselves. I know in the most recent Moses movie, um, if you haven't seen it, it's really funny. Um, Moses is like this de depicted as this war hero. He's training the Israelites to start shoot, shoot um um, arrows and God is shown as like a little kid. It's really weird. Um, but um, what, what's really happening in both this Exodus story and the book of Joshua is Joshua nor Moses is doing the fighting. It is God fighting 
for the people of Israel in saving them. Also, um, in the book of Exodus, when the people are leaving the land of Israel, it says many other people joined the Israelites. Yeah. What is emphasized in our text? Who joins the Israelites at this point? Rahab. And if you actually do studies of the word, Rahab is such a key character. If I had more time, I would focus on her. Um, she has a, as much space dedicated to her than the destruction of the wall. She's a very important character in this narrative. She's, she, she's um, this example of a Canaanite joining in, an example of God's grace going on, going upon these people. Very, very striking similarities that we see here. Um, we see that um, when the people of Egypt, uh, Israel, leave Egypt, they take gold and silver as well as cloth from the Egyptians. And here we see the Israelites taking silver, gold, bronze, and iron from the, from the people of Jericho. And what do they do with these precious objects that they take? In the book of Exodus, we read that the Israelites give these in order to construct the tabernacle and the different items that are in the tabernacle. And in the book of Joshua, we read that the Israelites offer these precious items to the storehouses, that they don't take it away. And in fact, the terrible story of what happens once you take it away is read it in the next chapter. You're going to see that it leads to destruction. Yeah. Because it's disobedience to the Lord. So, what is really happening here? I think the, the wall of Jericho is not as big as many people think, right. think it to be, nor is the city really big. So the story is not really about defeating an impossible city as you might try to make it sound. So the question is, what, what is it really? You know, I think as we read the story, we really realize that the story about this is about obedience. The biggest challenge for the Israelites wasn't, can you fight? Wasn't, can you defeat the, Jer the people of Jericho or the Canaanites? This key question that had to be asked at this point was, are the Israelites going to obey the Lord? That are you going to follow the examples of your ancestors, the good examples of your ancestors, and walk in the path of Moses and the other Israelites? And are you going to trust in the Lord for this divine battle? Because it's not them who will fight, it was the Lord who will fight their battles. And what was asked of the Israelites was not how much talent you had, how much muscle you had, how much people you had, um, how much training you had. No, it was simply... Of the life of the disobedience or disobedience that was emphasized in the text. So I think that's all for now, and I'm actually <laughs> Hello, my name is Lorenz, and I am a choir singer here at One Fellowship Church in Waco, Texas. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our congregation online at One Fellowship umc.org you can also like us on facebook in order to stay up to date with the latest events and activities taking place in our community please feel free to share this message and others on social media so that more people can hear about what god is doing here at one fellowship church thank you and god bless